Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk, and today get to finally have on the podcast uh, someone I've always wanted to have on, uh, Mr. Courtney Gaines. Uh, Courtney is an accomplished musician, uh, singer-songwriter, actor. Uh, you might be familiar with him as Malachi in the classic Children of the Corn. He's also been in Memphis Bell, Sweet Home Alabama, Candy Corn, The Wrath of Becky, which was recent. And uh, right now he's out there doing his promo for his new album and uh, new single. And uh, Courtney, it's great to have you on here. Hey, good to be here. Glad we, glad we uh, finally put it together. Here we are. It's uh, You're such a interesting career in life and I, I i do want to start with the music because i want to preface this when the pandemic started i went down these you'd spend these weeks where i was like I'm, I'm gonna find actors that also release music and so obviously the eddie murphy's and like the bruce willis and all these musicians <laughs> that failed uh to really gain traction outside of what they're famous for for acting and uh it wasn't until i watched uh like people like Jeff Bridges or Kevin yep. Bacon or Kevin Costner with Modern West and all the stuff he's doing. And I came across your stuff and I know we had joked about on email. I was familiar with your song, Johnny Law. For yeah, obvious I, reasons, could, I, could, I couldn't believe you knew that song. For obvious reasons, my name, I was prior Secret yeah. Service. I've always loved yeah. law enforcement. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of did a rabbit hole. Once I saw, I don't know where I saw you, maybe it was a convention or like a, someone saw, you mentioned this video where, hey, I got this new album coming. But then I realized once you said the EP over the body of work you actually have, whether it was playing with fish or working with Matt Sorb or slash or all this stuff you're doing, working with Doug Blair from wasp and Bruce from kiss. It's like, I had no idea. Like you were part of one of those actors that could actually say you're a successful musician. Like some of the people I mentioned before. It's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's it, even in the acting career, it's sort of when you put it all down into a resume, all of a sudden it looks like a nice body of work. You know, it's just sort of, you know, one thing that happened this year and then thing and everything happened five years ago and everything happened 10, 15 years ago. But when you put it all together, it does look pretty cool. You know, I've just been chipping at the music thing on the side uh, the whole time. You know, I started taking guitar lessons the same time I started taking acting lessons when I was 13, but I was always really clear acting was going to be the profession. So I approached it very differently. I never stopped studying as an actor and really approached it from learning the craft of, as a method actor. Once I knew how to play the, the guitar pretty you know, decent, like basic chords and, and some and some scales, I didn't want to keep studying because I didn't want to know too much because I felt it was going to limit me as a writer. What I mean by that is I'd be comparing myself to too many other people's songs and too many other styles. And I didn't want that. I just wanted to write by feel. And so I essentially from that point taught myself to write up the neck and was always writing. That was always the thing that I've, that's really my joy in music is, is writing. And it's also been a real outlet for me when I've gone through things in my life, that was a way to express myself and get through it. Well, a lot of your lyrics come off as whether it's dark humor or satirical or you're, you're, is it fair to say that lyrically you, would you, would you write your songs that it's a, direct how you feel about what the, what's going on in the world today kind of your, yeah. your take on it 
Yeah, well, if you go like to the earlier stuff, like I put out also I put out that Acoustic Gains record in 2021. That's a much more personal record. If you listen to my Ripple Street record, the band I was in for like a decade, that was a breakup record, much more personal. But this record, this EP Safe Haven is very much a storytelling record. So, yes, it's absolutely about things that uh that you know i have some angst but i think that's what rock and roll is right rock and roll is rebellion rock and roll is angst rock and roll is getting out the things that uh you know are on your nerves it's not just all about partying and having a good time you know <laughs> yeah one of your uh and i just recently saw on youtube you just put out the one of the singles or songs off the new album safe haven good times you performed like this metal festival which i mean i get why the metal community would be obviously with you with a horror background and like right. your legacy there, but performing your kind of stripped back Southern folky rock music. Was it a weird experience for you? Tell me about that. Well, so it was also at the haunted house. It's called the haunted pyramids in North Carolina. So they've been doing that haunted house for like 20 years. So I knew it was going to be my, my, my fan base as it were. Right. And my approach this with this record, um, uh, for example, the PR company I've had helped me work on is this company named Clawhammer PR, which is primarily a metal uh, a PR company, but I thought to myself, who's going to reach my fan base across the world better than these guys? And it turned out to be true. You know, we've gotten covered in France and Germany and Italy and Spain. And it's all because they have that reach out to the horror people. And they're like, wait, what? This dude plays music? Okay, I'll take a listen. And hopefully, you know, I figured the bar for actors isn't that high. So hopefully it exceeds their expectations. And we've got some killer reviews, much, much kinder reviews than I expected. So I've been very pleased. So I was prepared for that going in there that we were going to go, you know, going into the horror crowd. They're going to be like, well, that moment of truth. Can this guy play or can't he play? And um, they responded very, very well. And yeah, we decided as the last thing to kick out on the PR campaign uh, was to kick out a live version of the sixth song on on the uh, EP called Good Times, which I've had for a long time. And I've played I played a lot of places and it's always a song that gets people on their feet and rocking hard. And it went over really well. And I think the video came. I was really glad they covered they, they shot it and we were able to use it. And I think it came out really cool. We did it. We decided to go black and white with the smoke. We thought it looked really cool. And uh, I'm, pre I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, it's uh, again with your the type of music. If those aren't familiar, and I do suggest everyone go out there and buy all your music. Um, but it's again, I I I love the Americana vibe, the folky, the very it's just nitty gritty of that type of stuff. But right, you've also worked. I mean, I understand playing with Fish and those type of jam band type stuff. Yeah. But when you get involved with someone like Matt Sorm or Slash on Journeyman, or working with Bruce or Doug from Wasp, like is it is it how conducive was that like these different people from different types of music backgrounds working with you on top of your ideas and stuff like that? Well, there are different projects. So I'll talk about that. But the number one thing that I got from them is seeing what it's like to be working with pros professionals in a, in a recording environment. Right. Right. That's the number one thing. And, and, and I guess, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised by it, but the number one thing, yeah, really, you can, you can, you, I can apply it to acting in that, like, what is my expectation as an actor? I go, I'm prepared, I'm ready to work. I know my lines. I've, I've made my character choices. And that's very similar to how they approach it. They come in and they're prepared. You know, they know what they're doing. They know what they want and they know time is money and they're banging it out, you know, but to see it is different than to think it right. To see them go, mm -hmm. oh man, you know, that's I'm not coming into the studios as a musician as prepared as I could. I could be more professional. So it's it that was the uh, that was the main lesson I learned. The two projects were very different. So 
the journeyman, how that happened was my girlfriend and Matt Storm's girlfriends were best friends. And they were roommates. And so then I met Matt up at his house where he has a studio and my girl sort of egged me on to play something for him. And I played it and he's like, I like your voice. You want to record something? I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why wouldn't I want to work with Matt Sorum? And I knew he'd been producing. He produced for this woman, Poe, for quite a while, who had, had a couple pop hits and things. So we did that. I put a band together. We did that. It came out great. But it needed like a really good blues rock lead over, which I'd mentioned to him, which he was like, yeah. And then a week later, I got a call. And he's like, hey, man, so uh, Slash needs to come up here and do something. I asked him to play on your song. And he said, yes. I was like, you know, and then and then I had heard that he likes to always have a, a a bottle of Jack with him when he's recording. Takes a little swig before he lays it down. So I bought the biggest bottle of Jack I could get my hands on, and I said, you know, thanks for being here, man. And then I just watched this guy. You know, when you watch a master, it doesn't look like they're working hard at what they're doing, but what's happening is this great sounds coming out of there. And then luckily, we also had this really good. Um, engineer who had just come off a stones record who who they knew and this guy had great ears and he'd be like so after slash did a lead he'd be like oh, i think that note's a little sharp i think that note's a little flat or whatever and, and slash respected him and so they would go in and, and do what they call punch-ins where they just he'd re go okay what's that part and then you have to go right on the money punch in catch that part punch out if you blow it now you've missed you you you've oh you know you overtape that section and for two hours these guys just clean this lead up and then when Slash left, you know, Matt was like, well, you know, if you didn't like the song, you would have done one pass and left. And I was like, that's amazing, right? Like Slash liked the song enough to, to spend the time to do it. But having that excellent engineer too, again, yeah. two real pros working together really took it over the top. And I ended up getting that that song on a compilation record on a, a friend of mine's label up in uh, San Francisco called, called Future Farmer Records. And it was a, it was very different than most of the stuff he was putting out, but it caught on college radio, which was which was a really nice surprise. And that was probably the first thing I really had get out there. And I'm still to this day getting that song out there. I, I still play it on my set. I just tell the story I just told. But it just got in another movie I did called um, My Redneck Neighbor. And I always say, who do you think played the redneck neighbor? Darker. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it just got picked up in a movie. So it, it continues to get out there because it's just a really good tune. Now, the other project, that is a very different project. That is uh, this guy, Mike Dallager, wrote a metal rock opera based on H.P. Lovecraft's awesome. Dreams of the Witch House. And that thing is amazing. So he put out a double record. And that you can hear. And then he also decided to get some horror people involved um, and start re-recording some songs and adding some new tracks. And that's where I came in. I ended up bringing John Franklin in too, oh, uh, awesome. from Children of the Corn. And um, it was just an, it, the, the production value on these things is just off the chain good, man. And I got to I got to sit in there and watch Bruce Krillick work. And I got to sit in there and watch Doug Blair work. And like I said, just a real learning lesson on being prepared and being pros and getting it done. Uh, but yeah, that record and these singles that he's put out since uh, is absolutely amazing. And in the H.P. Lovecraft circles, people are like, oh, you know, like you're a god because it's so good. Yeah. And the goal, the goal is to eventually make a movie and which is there's been lots of he's been trying to raise the money to make it happen. And it would just be like one crazy long rock of, uh, of music video, you know, and, and hopefully eventually from there it might even become a play, which I would freaking love to do. So it's just I was very fortunate to land in that project and get to and get to be around these super talented guys. 
wild. So how is an independent artist? And I, that's kind of how we're going to segue into like the acting yeah. part as well. But how vital is it to have a rec- label like Fake Fag Records, which your stuff's on now, to no. like it could do be conducive to what what you're trying to do? It's no, that was a big step for me as an independent. I've never had a, other than that one single get picked up by a label. I've never had a label, and um, it's a local. I'm in Savannah now. It's it's a local Savannah record label, and uh, and you know they put out Savannah people from Savannah, which was kind of cool. It's kind of kind of a you know a independent that way. But no, it's a huge help, and they helped design the whole CD and put the money behind releasing the CD and all those things that you know help make something happen. And now they're getting involved in helping us put together um, the. The, uh, the two the, the tour dates that we're going to try to do next year to go out there and promote again we're a small small uh, small thing we'll go to like the west coast for 10 days midwest for 10 days east you know and and try to just keep getting out there and just keep spreading the word and that's this thing is very grassroots this thing's very independent but to have a label behind me even though it's a, it's just a, an independent label is a big step for me in the right direction and it's it's, it's really helped a lot is it, what are the similarities or differences between a, like a fake, like a not a fake, a a independent uh, record label versus like an independent film studio? Like, have you? I mean, you've dabbled with both. So. I don't think I don't think of studios when I think of independent films. I okay. think of independent filmmakers, right? And, and it's it's very simple, right? If you're a big studio or a big, uh, you know, your Warner Brothers music, you have this entire vast group of people that are behind you with money but also with you know they're hooking up with producers they're hooking up with per, per, uh great photographers they're hooking up with, with the the pr department they're you know all these things they do to launch a project the smaller the ind- you know the independent project the more hats you have to wear right, right. <laughs> so you're doing all of these things so it's a very small label with a very small staff and then and then and then me you know hustling this thing so um but i love it i'm enjoying i'm enjoying that like i said getting i think the best move i made on this uh other than fake fangs was to get claw hammer behind it they've done a kick-ass job for me and we've really gotten the word out we've really gotten like i said gotten some great reviews and those are those quotes are things i can use you know when we're we're trying to now get into you know it, it getting gigs like this 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 what was cool about this north carolina gig is that was our first festival we what we've been doing so i have a band called the courtney Gaines group we've been playing out in savannah in the local area for about two, uh, almost a year now and it's been really good because here it's a it's like they hire you a band for the night you got to play play three 45 minute sets that's you know it's a lot of material yeah so you so you're so i'm playing out weekend warring for the last year because in this band, I switched from guitar to bass because I, ne- I felt like I needed a better guitar player to help carry the set because I mean, these sets are so long. Um, but I've been getting my chops together, you know, for like the last year, building up to this moment for this release to now go out and promote the record. And that was the first like real test, like, OK, now we're going to strip it down. 50 minute set. Pick your best stuff. Going to put you on a big stage, put you with a big sound system and some lights. What you got? And, you know, I think we rocked. I think we rocked it. But it was, a, you know, that was a build. That was a lot of work to get to that moment. So now that we've done that, now we know we can do that. And now we've got proof we can do it. So now we're we're, we're definitely going to be going more aggressively after festivals next year because we feel we can get up there and hold our own, you know? Well, it's, it's kind of cool, too, because with your acting, like the, the movie conventions, like the horror conventions, I know some of them actually start doing like the performances. I know Thomas G. Waits, who's been on the podcast a bunch, his band's uh, been offered to play some of these festivals outside of what he does for like the signings and stuff. And I, I think that's so unique where it's like the fans get to see a different side of you doing right. that. It's such a rad thing to do. 
Right. And so we're in the process of trying to figure that all out, too, because next year is 40th anniversary yeah. of Children of the Corn. So there's I've already signed on to some really big conventions yeah. for next year. But that's rare that this early in the game to do that. So so the, so that's already been happening. And that's not even the October ones, which is, the you know, obviously the big the big kahunas, as it were. So we're trying to figure out how to work with that. And if, if those promoters are open to having the band coming out. But also another thing uh, we're doing is. um uh, there's a 35 millimeter print of corn out there, which is like one of the few left. And, and, uh, we're trying to work with some independent, um, um, uh, curators who would be willing to have show the screening of the 35 millimeter print, do a Q and a band play VIP thing. And every time I put that out, people are like, that sounds awesome. So I definitely, we're in the works on that. That's also awesome. recording that next year. That would be a lot of fun. And, uh, so we're just trying to figure out how to, tie these two things together obviously with this big anniversary and honestly it's gonna it's gonna be my, my pretty much my last horror run for conventions i've been doing it i don't know 15 16 years have yeah let's go out on top i don't want to be one of those old dudes that got a card in you know that can't stand up anymore you know i don't want to be that dude uh I've, I've been watching those dudes for 15 years of like that i'm not in a position where i have to do that you know uh and i don't need the accolade you know i've I, i'm happy with what i've done with it so I think this is the swan song. Who knows? Maybe for 45th, maybe I'll be like, ah, yeah. okay, let's go out and do something. But I, as of right now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been on enough planes in my life and traveled enough places. Uh, I think it's a good, I think it's a good swan song. So, so, so tying these all together, I think is a good, good thing. So how do you kind of micromanage your time between like the, what you do for your, your projects of art, the singing and songwriter, then the acting, like, is there a, do you ever have a time where you have to step back and be like, because you are so independent and doing all this stuff that how do you I'll, kind of figure that people out? People always assume I'm busy. And you know, as I understand that's an assumption. But the truth of the matter is when it comes to the film business, for me, it's always been like feast or famine, right? There's times where like you can't get arrested, right? And things seem slow and you're like, what's going on? And then five jobs come or three jobs come and they're all want to shoot at the same time. <laughs> you know, It's like, it, it, I don't know if it's just the universe rolls that way or whatever. So you just never know, right? It's like, you're, you're kind of like not doing anything. And then next thing you know, you know, you get a gig and then, you know, three days later on a plane somewhere and you're shooting. It's like, it goes from zero to a hundred. And that's, that's usually how it, it, it really rolls. So, but I, the, the music has been keeping me busy uh, uh, a, a lot because of the fact that I, you know, I tracked this whole thing myself. Then I, you know, mixed it with a guy and we had to do, it was a lot of work. It wasn't just like I tracked everything perfect. And from beginning to end, it was like, we had to do a lot of slicing and dicing and then playing regularly has been, has been the the thing that's kept me busy. Cause the next act maybe like oh you know we want a four hour set you're like oh crap now i gotta add a whole nother eight songs and then we you know we lose a guitar player now you gotta add a new dude these are the things that bands are used to that's been uh growing pains for me but it's been very good because like i said in a year i've come a long way and this year acting wise has been super slow because why the strike right? right yeah but you know as soon as that thing ends next year it's gonna pick up so do i think next year is gonna be one of those juggling balls kind of year between the gigs and the appearances and work i think it is i think it's gonna be and you just you just gotta work it all out right you just you just if they were on the work with your schedule you make it happen right 
Yeah. If people wanted to pick up the new album or check out your music, do they head to Fake Fag Records, the website? Yeah, that's the only that's the only place to get it. Thank you for asking that question. Fakefangs.com is where you want to go. Fakefangs.com. And the cool thing is, is you can listen to the record three times for free, which I think is very cool. I love that. You know, you don't after that, you, even if you enjoyed it, you don't want to buy it. Cool. But if you do want to buy it, you can get a digi download for six bucks or you can buy a uh, limited run CDs uh for seven bucks and you i think you get the digi pack with that anyway so that's a good deal um or i'll be obviously bringing them to shows whether they be gigs or conventions and sign if you want to get a person signed one that's the way to do that um and i'm really happy with the way the record came out it was so cool to finally get the cd and listen to it in its entirety as opposed to keep clicking one song at a time to hear it like a record you know what i mean I mean, I'm even thinking about maybe pressing some records. We'll see. But uh, but but to hear it, because that's I came up in the generation where you listen to records, right? You listen yep. from beginning to end. And the, a lot of the bands I admire, like a Floyd or a Zeppelin or whatever, I, I always felt they made a great record, not just a great one or two songs, but how everything flowed. And I, I feel this thing flows together pretty nicely. So I'm, um, I'm really happy about that. But yeah, we don't want to go through iTunes or Spotify and they've been there, done that. They've never done anything to help me sell anything. So we're right. going direct this time. But you can't listen to Johnny Law on iTunes, and I do recommend everyone to check that That's out. That's true. Yeah, you can't find if you want to find you know some of my stuff. You can't find it on iTunes. You can't find it on Spotify. You can't find things on YouTube. By all means, and like I said, I have my other band Ripple Street. There's a number of things up there from that. By all means, go check those out. I, 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 you know, all I want is for people to hear to take a listen to the tunes, and if they like them, you know, keep keep it on file, right? So you right. you just never know who you're going to move, touch, or inspire. That's what I've learned. Put yourself out there. You just never know who's going to dig what you do. No, it's awesome. And I think one of the cool things, re- one of the recent movies I caught up on, The Wrath, uh, the Wrath of Becky, yeah. uh, you get to play this character called Twig, but it's, I thought it was very tongue-in-cheek how you kind of play like this banjo, backwoods banjo type person that I don't want to spoil the movie for those who haven't seen it, but right. is it kind of cool to kind of blend both together in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way? Well, I, yeah, any chance I, anytime I have a chance to, play music in a movie i'll do it right um and i have i mean you can go all the way back to colors dennis hopper saw yeah. me playing guitar on my trailer while he was going there's a bathroom at the end of the trailer he was like hmm, this guy can play and then the girl uh, she said hey can i do the song he's like yeah and he goes why do you go get your guitar and i thought how cool cholo's playing music only dennis hopper would have let that happen nobody else would do that now right. and people to this day still try to find that song for me it's called love guaranteed which i didn't even know and i'm like i don't know man talk to her you know she's the one who wrote the song if she was smart she would record the song and put it up because i think she could i mean i'm telling you djs all the time for some reason want that song and i i i don't know i don't i haven't talked to her since colors i don't know if she's alive i don't know but like she would be the one because it's, it's her tune but um, but any chance I've had. So when on on uh, Wrath of Becky, they say, can you play banjo? I said, I don't know. I never played banjo. I said, give me one. I'll mess with it. I said, if we can't figure it out, we'll just do guitar. Right. And I was able to, you know, it's certainly different than a guitar, but I was able to kind of figure it out and simply, you know, and came up with something. And it came out cool. What I would say about you're right. The movie's tongue in cheek. I agree with you. And I knew that if I grew this beard, the proud boy roles would come. And I knew they were coming because after the pandemic, everything got so heated. And you know, Hollywood's <laughs> going to make them the bad guys. I mean, that just is what it is. Right. But to me, life is more nuanced than that. Right. It's not all the way to the left or the woke. It's not all the way to the extreme. Right. It's somewhere in the middle. This guy was definitely to the extreme. Right. For sure. 
but he was still a human being. And to me as an actor, that's my job. And that's what I loved about the turn where the guy begs yeah. for his life. And then it has a great turn, which of course we don't want to give away. But, but even, you know, even, a, you know, even a guy who's a proud boy could still cook, could be, you know, could be a chef, you know, uh, you know, and it, it, life is more nuanced. You know, it's not it's not just like, t, you know, it's not just good guys and bad guys. Right. So there's a lot in the middle there that, um, you know, people from people from the south and stuff, they they respect God, you know, and country, you know, God, family and country or God, country and family in that order. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just it's just sometimes it conflicts with other people's points of views. And it just seems like everybody just wants to, like, fight nowadays. I put a song out with the on, on January 6th with the uh, with my band Ripple Street uh, called The Great Divide. That's about that same subject. And the, the chorus is just, you know, divided, you know, united. We stand divided. divided they conquer. United. We stand. It's like the, the whole song saying you have to choose this. You have to choose that. You have to choose this. You have to choose that. But you don't. That's the whole point. Right. You don't have to. No one said you have to believe, you know, all the way into abortion or, or all the way into gun control. It's like there's nuance, right? We're, we're nuanced human beings. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it's fascinating. It's the whole thing too. It's like I when I look at movies or music, like I want to escape from what's happening in the world. It's like and to your point, it's like I don't I never want to be told how to think. I have my convictions, beliefs, and faith or whatever you want to call it, but I don't need someone else to make me change my mind, or nor do I have to see someone else to be like feel uncomfortable enough to not be myself. And I think for me, like music and movies is an escape from that. And it's uh it's it's right. necessary. And yeah, and, and, and the big thing for me is like, yeah, you're you're you know this the whole point of this country having some freedom, right? Freedom and religion, freedom of religion, religion not being tied into the government, right? That was which separates us from so many places, is that you have the right to choose, right? And so it's so like why anybody feels they have the right to tell you or tell me what I should think and what I should do. That's the line. It's like I'm not telling you what you you know you want to believe in Jesus. That's your business. You want to believe in Buddha. That's your business. But you don't need to tell me who, who I should believe in. Just like I don't need to tell you who you should believe in. That's that's the deal. It's like we all we all have our own path yeah. that we have to find. You know what I mean? It's uh it's it's frustrating too at times. But Absolutely. so so as we kind of and I want to preface this 1984, Children of the Core comes out. The first time I saw this movie, my perfect segue. My my cousins and I, <laughs> yeah, it feels like I want to do some of the stuff in that movie to people this last couple of years. <laughs> so I remember the first time I, my cousins and I saw this movie, my mom's side of the family, they're dairy farmers. We'd all sit in the farmhouse. And my grandfather who recorded this on VHS. And like, there's like nine of us sitting around watching this movie. We see Malachi and Isaac and all this stuff going on. And like, it was the first time I was enthralled with horror. The first time I got introduced to Stephen King was, uh, and, uh, my, and my appreciation to, it was just a, such a surreal time. And every time this movie comes on, my cousins, and I still have group text quoting lines for the movie or setting memes of you or John. <laughs> uh, and so it's just like, there's so much I want to ask you, but it's like, how do you, at what point did you realize that that movie would define a generation and people would resonate with that film? Woo. That's a big question, man. Uh, well, I, I got to take it back to sort of the, you know, sort of the beginning when it came out and, you know, you got to understand back then B, oh. you know, B movies, horror movies were B movies. They were not mainstream. Right. So we got, you know, 
panned by the critics and I individually got panned by some critics in LA that like I'd seen on TV for years. It was my first film. It was like, Oh, you know, but I say now they're not doing their job anymore. And here we are 40 years later talking about it. So it turns out we were on the right side of history. Um, I don't think anyone could have predicted that horror would have gone so mainstream. I mean, now it's completely mainstream, right? Some of the most successful shows on TV are horror, you know? So that, that is the sort of the maturation of this whole thing. And I didn't really, really, really know until I started doing conventions 15 years ago. It was sort of still pre-internet for me. I wasn't spending a lot of time on there. I had no idea. I, I mean, I knew, I knew that Turn of the Corner had an impact because I got recognized everywhere I went for it and like that. But I didn't know, like, for example, the Burbs had as big an impact as it has. <laughs> like, that's my number two seller. There are people who are like diehard. Burbs fans who like watch it with their family like every year, you know, like you're just like, whoa, I had no idea. So that's the that's been the great thing about the conventions for me is that it gave me access to to people that I would have not known otherwise. Right. Or even like you and I talking right here, you know, like I would have no idea that, that movie had such an impact on you and your friends, right? So it's it's given me an insight to all of that. And 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 I, I sort of say in the acting world, you know, there's people who get critical acclaim and there's people who get street cred and then there's some people who get both i don't i've never gotten the critical acclaim but there is no doubt that i got the street cred you know and that and that's the impact right it's like it's not it's not the people that they say are like the great actors or or the you know the great film it's but it's the it's the people and the people freaking love that movie (laughs) and it means and it means more to people than i think that people in la and critics would have any clue of you know so when you get handed that script like as you flip through the pages like oh yeah i gotta do this or like what was the trial for that role yeah no so yeah so it wasn't like that it was like i'm a young hungry dude looking for a job Right. Like I'm trying to break into this business. Right. And the casting director, Linda Francis, had become a fan. She'd seen me in a showcase where I did a scene. So all these actors do these scenes and they like they they like you. They take your picture like that. And she she cast me in this other movie that then didn't happen. And then when this came around, you know, she I mean, there was more. I was obviously not the only person who auditioned, but she was championing me from the jump. When it came down to three people or whatever, she still kept saying, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. Um, I, had, I had to audition twice. The first, the story is the first one. I had this plastic knife, you know, the ones you can like look that I had in my pocket that I didn't know if I was going to use that I whipped out and put under the guy's throat who was the reader who went on to become a very, very big casting director later in comedy who never, ever cast me in anything. And whenever he did things, we tell people don't ever do that, which I agree. Don't ever do that. But I was young, dumb and hungry and it took a risk, but it gave me the power in the scene because he really didn't know if it was a knife or not. He was wetting his pants then i had to come back and audition with john franklin who already got his job and i picked him up by his lapels you know off the little guy off his feet and he said you were by far the scariest dude who walked in the room and i just i had a chip on my shoulder i thought i had something to prove so when i got the job i didn't get excited i got i got like it got real for me like this is it like i've got to prove to myself and to Hollywood that I belong, that I can do this. So it was just game on for me. I'd been studying for five years. I knew I was good at what I did, but I hadn't proven it yet. I'd never been in a feature. So it was it was really about, you know, making that statement. And I guess it worked out because here we are, right? Were you familiar with Stephen King at that time too? Or is it because of this movie? Yeah, that- but he wasn't as big as he is now. You right. know, and I was saying, we've been, thank God, you know, we've, we've been riding the Stephen King uh, coattails, you know, for, for 40 years, you know? 
And he wasn't involved in that movie because right. he had sold that short story before he was famous. That was just in the, it was in that night, the book night shift. And uh, so, so, but, but still, you know, it's his name. That's, that's carried, you know, that's carried this project all along. Was the idea, I think when I, when I first saw it, the reason why, like the violence of children killing adults. Now, spoiler right. alert, this is what happens in the movie. Uh, right. But like, was there ever a point where you're kind of filming this going, oh God, if this doesn't work out, like people are going to see me as a person who just killed people on screen. That's it. Like, how well, do you- that's what, I mean, it's because it worked out. People saw me that way. Right. I mean, right. that was uh, the, the exact opposite. No, I didn't think about any of those things. I, I, I just was trying to do a good job in my first film. Right. That's, that's all. Um, but it was the eighties. Right. And, and I, it was very, and you know, metal, you know, was king on the Sunset Strip. I'm in LA and metal's king. And that that was the angst of those kids, right? I mean, they, you know, it was like, you know, you know freaked their parents out because they may be listening to bands who worship the devil, you know? And so it was like, and I know, I know, I knew kids, I knew a girl who was, whose parents were, were a religious who put her in an institution because she listened to metal because she was rebelling so hard against their beliefs, right? right? Like that shit was really going on around me. So it, the idea of, and I was a teenager, the idea of that angst, of that fantasy of wanting to get rid of the parents so you could do what you want was not, you know, not an, not an unreasonable reach. And I think the reason the movie carries on all this time is because every teenager who discovers rebellion, every teenager who discovers rock and roll, every teenager who discovers horror or a movie like this, it speaks to them. It speaks to where they're at at that time. And I think it always will, as long as there's teenagers in America, yeah. they're going to discover this movie and they're going to be like, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's how vital was it to have like the senior actors like Linda Hamilton or Peter Horton, those type of people, not only obviously children of core, but say someone like Tom Hanks and the Burbs, like the mentorship you get from those actors who was, they were steadily getting bigger and bigger as well. Well, I think the real, yeah, I think the real, the real OG in that movie was R.G. Armstrong. Oh, right? so good. And I'd seen him in so many things coming up, right? So that was great for me to get to get to meet him and work with him. You know, Linda Hamilton and, and Peter Horton really weren't all that more established than we were at that time. You know, they were just a little bit older. But I think the I think it speaks to the the job that Linda Francis did casting the film because all of these people went on. We all went on to have successful careers, and you can't say that about all, all horror films. A lot of people get a lot of people get pigeonholed doing nothing but horror films for the rest of their life. We all went went on to do bigger and better things, as it were. And for me, the the one decision I made because the response was so big. I mean, I would literally see kids go crying to their mother when they'd see me. So I was just like, "Holy cow!" I wasn't ready for all this, but I was like, "I can't do this role again, or like again, or I'm gonna get stuck." So I made a real a real decision as a character actor looking to have a long a longevity career to not play the same role twice in that '80s run. And that ended up really boding well for me because I had a hit in every genre, including, you know, hard bodies with tits and ass movie of that, of that era, but romantic comedies. And, and so when I made that transition into adulthood, you know, I had a body of work, you know, and, 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 and very different characters. And so it was hard for people to deny I couldn't do more than one thing, you know? Right. And I think that that really, uh, really helped the longevity of my career. How vital was the friendship with jo or John Franklin as Isaac in the film? I mean, obviously, you talked about the conventions and stuff, but it seems like you guys generally 
are friends to this day. I think that's something really it, unique and cool. It, it happened over time. And it was because we've, I think the main reason is because we shared this same experience. This was both our first film and, you know, we're, you know, we're voted like, you know, in the top 10 creepiest, scariest kids of all time. Like, like, it's like, you know, that's what's up, you know? And I think he's number one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, so we share this common experience and I think that's really where the bond is. And I think we'll forever be linked together. And that's why we do conventions and all these things, but yeah, it's, it's just the shared experience. You know, I think that, that has, has us stay together because we understand we only the two of us really understand what we what we've what we've gone through you know what i mean yeah if that makes sense it's uh that franchise too like i know i'm friends with ahmed zappa and i know i think the fourth mm. one he was in it and tried to do like his we always joke about that right because i go oh my god it's my favorite all years part four right and so but like it's it's weird how it was like the perfect timing for that movie and still to this day with some of the themes of religion and faith and like these people that look at cults and stuff it's like we're this is 2023 and these are themes that are still around today which i want i think that original film will stand the test of time it's tough to replicate that in yes. this day and age no it was like you said it was the right timing at the right it, it was absolutely the right timing but obviously this this country is you know essentially dominated by a christian faith right and yeah and of course if there's good then there's got to be evil and as long as as long as that's the case, then this movie's always going to be the place for people to go that are tired of being dominated by a, a certain thing, right? Nobody likes to be dominated, right? Right. So they're going to avoid the domination. They get to go over here to this, right? So, um, and when you figure there's, you know, what, 330 million people in this country, I mean, only a million people need to be into what you're doing for it to have a huge splash. And, and sci-fi and horror fans are hardcore. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those... Those, as far as going to conventions and things, those are the people. Those are those are the ones that show up. Those are the ones that will spend their money, and those are the ones who promote and love those right. genres. No other genres have that kind of fan base. Right. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see like a romantic comedy convention where it's just like, oh, there's Courtney from Sweet Home Alabama, and you're <laughs> like, uh, it's all chill of the court stuff here. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I bring all of it though because there are people who yeah. ask for. Can't buy me love. There are people who ask for uh, Sweet Home Alabama, so I I learned over the years to try to have everything on my table that they can possibly think of. But but I started with a Children of the Corn picture because I thought that's all they'd want to see. But they're like, "Where's your burbs?" I got freaking asked that a lot. "Where's your burbs?" You know, I was like, <laughs> "Okay," and I've got burbs. Then you know, and then I sign a lot of Back to the Future posters. Oh yeah, a small role, but it's you know the huge one of the hugest franchises in Hollywood history. Though those who are into that movie, they want everybody's autograph on there no matter how small the role is because look it is i mean it's one of the it's one of the greatest trilogies in hollywood history yeah. I mean, it's an amazing thing for me to even think i have a small role in something that impactful in hollywood that just right i don't i don't take that for granted i'll just say that do you get residuals when that's on tv for that role yes. like, how's that work well uh, here's the story there's a little story to go with this one so I don't know if you know, but there's a there, it's it's documented at this point. So Eric Stoltz was originally the yes. lead, and he got let go. So I was already working dur during that time. So they can only um you can only what they call drop pickup once. So like in other words, we're like okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna have getting you paid day to day here. We're gonna see you again in two weeks or whatever. They only do that once. So they're already done that with me. So now I'm on payroll the entire time they're reshooting the movie. And they freaked out. We even let them know. And they freaked out once they re realized they'd been paying me for like five, six weeks. And we negotiated something, but it was still 
yeah. a nice boon. I was maybe supposed to work three days, right? So you see, so, so however much money you make in a project dictates plus how much money it makes dictates what your residual is. That's awesome. So it's it's gone on to be my greatest residual in my life. And I can't tell me how many times when it was things were lean that I, one of those back to the future checks would come in and pay my rent. That in Sweet Home, Alabama, because they and you watch them, they're on TV. Those two all are the time. on TV all the time. Those are the two that uh, have been the best residuals in, in my career. Rad. Yeah, it's such an interesting how that all gets set up like that. Now, one of the th cool things I like when I when I saw Joaquin Phoenix play Johnny Cash, uh, yeah. or uh, the Butler kid play Elvis, uh, yeah. Tom Hiddleston play I think Harry Connick, or not Harry Connick, he played uh, <laughs> uh, who did he play? Whoever it is, uh, is there? So if you got the opportunity, a limited budget, the the team around you want, and they're like, hey. Courtney, we want you to portray this famous singer songwriter. Who would you pick? It's really easy. He hasn't passed away yet, but he's getting he's getting older. I had the fortunate the fortunate uh, thing to actually get to work with him. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna move this for a second. You see that Spanish guitar right there? Oh yeah. You know whose signature is on that? Uh, Willie Nelson, son. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And I don't I don't get many autographs, but I had a chance to work with him on a. Um, uh, uh, what the hell was that? I'm playing. When I had to think about something under pressure, I forget the show too. It was uh, shot up in San Francisco. Uh, I'll get it in a second. Uh, but I, I played his dying son, and I I brought the guitar and I knocked on his trailer. And I, well, at first I just knocked his trailer. I was supposed to be sick. I had been dying of AIDS. I said before I get into make him look horrible, I just want to say hello. And he couldn't have been nicer. Invited me in his trailer. Couldn't have been nicer. And after a while, I said, "Hey, I do have a guitar. Would you mind signing?" He's like, "Oh, sure, bring it up." So Willie Nelson played that guitar and signed it, man. And uh, that, and he couldn't have been a nicer guy, but I think if there's anybody I could do, it would be him. That'd be awesome. You know, I think, I think my voice is not that far from his, you know, um, yeah. and obviously I'm getting older too. So it would have to be the older Willie Nelson now, not as old as him, mind you, but, um, but I feel I could do that role. And I, I feel that uh, I could, you know, I could, I could sing those songs, yeah. you know, Um so that would be the one that, that, that a lot of times these questions are impossible. Like, I'm like, Oh no, no, that was an easy one. That's awesome. And at the top, the top Hiddleston movie was actually Hank Williams. I think. Oh, Hank Williams. Hank, yeah, that'd, yeah. Be, that'd have been cool too. Yeah. And so it's kind of, do you think it's easier? I mean, that's such a relative term, but for an actor to portray a singer or a singer to be an actor in a film, like, cause it happens both times. Like, what do you think's tougher? I think it'd be tougher for the actor to play the to play yeah. the character to play the character, but I think that I, I've said this a lot in, in interviews. You know, I think that uh, you know musicians are allowed to come over into acting easy peasy because uh, basically they have a fan base and that's all they care about, whether it be rappers or whatever. Right. But musicians are not friendly to actors <laughs> trying to do music at all. Even the guys I have in my band, you know what I mean? There's always a little bit of like, you know, because because I'm not as good as they are. And they've dedicated their life to it, you know? Um, but I think what's funny is what they, I think sometimes what they can't handle either of those, because I, I know I'm, I'm not, look, I'm not a great singer. I'm not a great musician, but I do hang my hat on. I can write a good song. And I think sometimes somebody can be like, a lot of times like the best lead guitar players, they can't write songs. They're great noodlers. That's what they do. It's usually the rhythm guitar players would be ACDC, Guns N' Roses. Those are the dudes who write the songs, you know? And uh that's where I hang my hat is that I, I think I can write a, I think I can write a good song. I, and I, I've been playing out long enough and I've been playing originals long enough that I've gotten the response 
to to the to the point where I know it's true. But even that sometimes pisses him off. It's like, how come this guy who's an actor who's not as good a musician as me, but like he writes songs people like? Yeah, dude, I do. Like maybe it's because I don't try to be too freaking complicated, and I write from a place of feeling, not a place of intellect. Oh, this is three, four, bossa nova, blah blah. Who cares? Either it moves you or it doesn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. the bottom line. It's uh, it's awesome. Well, <laughs> it's rad. Uh, so before I let you go, Courtney, like if people want to check out, see what you're doing on social media, they want to buy your records, and then we touch upon that. But just kind of reiterate, if people want to support you, where can they find you? Sure, sure. So I have two Facebook pages. One is Courtney Gaines, and then the other one is Courtney Gaines Group. That's the band. So if you want to find out what's going on with the band, you got to go to that page, especially if we start touring and stuff. We're just going to announce stuff as we go. So, um, so Courtney Gaines, the Courtney Gaines group. I also have an Instagram. I don't have any official BS. You'll know it's me. Who else can be posting the things I'm posting? Right. <laughs> so figure it out. Uh, so that's the three, that's the three socials. That's more socials than I want. <laughs> don't do TikTok any of that stuff. And then, yeah, if you again, if you want to check the record out, you got to go to fake fangs records to fakefangs.com. Fakefangs.com. You can hear it three times for free. If you like it, you know, you got to buy the whole record. It's only six songs, and which I also love that. I love that we're not selling individual tracks. Buy the record or don't buy the record. Um, but give it, a, give it a listen. You might find something on there you like. No, awesome. I know I got the uh, record or the album. Yeah, I know you signed it. And uh, awesome. but hopefully, hopefully you actually do a vinyl too, because I think that is like you kind of touched upon it. But I think that's super unique and it's it's super grassroots. And the fact that vinyl is coming back to, is as high as it is again. Yeah, uh, I think it's, it's pretty rad. I think it's going to come down to feeling like we're touring enough and getting enough people to see us. If I feel like that's going well, then I think we make the investment and do a limited run of, of records. Cause I would be, I would love to have a record, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's records aren't cheap. CDs aren't cheap, but records are really aren't cheap. Yeah. So to do it, you got to feel like you can move the units and it, it, it takes time, you know, no, I, I hear you. Well, thank you, Courtney, for the time, uh, dream come true, dream guest and uh, wish you all success. Oh, hello. I'm just enjoying this nice fucking camera. Anyways, I'm John, the host of Spear Talk, and I want to talk to you about Nice Fucking Candles. We are lucky to have Nice Fucking Candles as a sponsor of the podcast, and if you use code SPEARTALK15, you get 15% off your first order, or use the affiliate link below to always get your candle needs through Nice Fucking Candles. Nice Fucking Candles are 100% soy wax, they have a 65-hour burn time, maybe more, if you, uh nurse the flame a little bit maybe i don't know i'm not an expert on flames uh, or candles but i will say these things burn a long fucking time you ask me about the wick it's a double wick for even burning which is amazing and uh they come with three incredible flavors uh i'm not sure if you're going to be eating these candles but if you do like them the scents are eucalyptus and ginseng tobacco and fireside and seaside and driftwood once again uh nice fucking candles they are the candle company for spear talk if you love candles and need a good set to clear out your office, your room, your podcast room, your weight room, uh, your whatever you're doing in a room that smells like crap, use this candle. It's amazing. Thank you. Check them out. Love nice fucking candles. Do, did, 
Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.